0: you pastor good morning everybody am i heard can you hear me okay very good well a little rainy out there that I, that is rain okay if you don't know what that is and uh, maybe we'll have this this winter maybe we'll have some more snow i don't know how that's going to work we've had a terrible time in utah uh with the water situation so anything coming from the sky is a good thing especially with all that smoke you would think it would knock down some of that but uh well, this morning, I want to talk about what I was mentioning yesterday about the gospel. Do you have a way in two or three minutes that you could share the gospel with somebody who has no clue whatsoever as to what the gospel is? Because the gospel is about good news. That's what it means. And so what I would like to do is look at Ephesians chapter three, uh, 1, verses 3 through 10. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can have that out. Um, I'll have it on the, on the overhead as well. Uh, but the title of this is called Salvation from a Bear's Perspective. And you, if you have the notes, you're free to take a few notes. I have found teaching for 17 years, high schoolers, that just making them fill in a few things is a big help in helping them to remember. And then they can take it home. You can you can talk about it at lunch and, and see what you thought. But uh, my wife and I, Terry, have three girls. Um, uh, they are um, g- great girls. We've, we've enjoyed raising them. But we just became empty nesters last month. My youngest just got married August 1st, and so it's been a little lonely. I don't know. Some of you are empty nesters, and so you know what I'm talking about. Unless the kids, I hear they boomerang back sometimes. Some of you are saying yes, okay. So I don't know if that's going to happen, but uh, uh, in a few weeks, my oldest daughter, Carissa, is going to turn 28, um, 28 years old. She's an English teacher at a Christian school in Northern California. This is her fourth year of teaching. She's married with her husband. I have no grandchildren yet. Maybe someday that will happen. But I want to take you back to 1998. Uh, when I was teaching at Christian High School, Carissa was five years old, and her kindergarten, her kindergarten teacher gave me a book. Um, and she said she thought Carissa would love the story. So that night, I read the story named Corduroy. And when I finished, I was in tears. And that was kind of strange for Carissa because I used to read to her every night. In fact, she's an English teacher today. She was reading at a very young age. And, but I, I told her, I said, this is the most beautiful story for a children's story that I have ever read. Uh, may, maybe some of you have read that story to your children. Uh, it was written in the 1960s, uh, but what I want to do with Ephesians chapter one verses three through ten, I want to do something different. I want to be able to use a children's story and communicate the gospel and teach a little bit of theology as well. Okay, so that's what we're going to do today. So the main point uh, in this sermon today is I would like to deliver to you three promises, and that would be the first fill in there. If you want to do that, that can help us remember. The love that God has for us. Three promises that I think is found in Ephesians chapter 1 that help us to remember the love that God has for us. So the first promise that we have is found in verses 3 through 6, and it's We are picked to be His children. We are picked to be His children. Let me read to you, and if you wanted to follow in your own Bible, that's great, or you could follow up. On the overhead, uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. This is what Paul writes to the Ephesians. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the world. And how these verses are emphasizing the subject and the receiver, the direct object. The, 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 uh, the one who's doing all of the effort is who? Is that us doing the effort? It's all being done by God. It's not based on a performance on our part. This is not based on what we do. It's based on him. So the onus is off of our backs. That's the beautiful thing about the gospel. See, religion says we as human beings are the ones who chase after God. But the Bible says it's God is the one who chases after us. That's what Christianity teaches historically, biblically, That is the gospel message, how much God loves us. And that's a big difference, because he's blessed us, he chose us, he predestined us, and he has given us. All those are action words being done by the the giver to the recipient, and that is the Christian. So that is good news. You are picked. How does that work? I'm not sure. Uh, People would like to know exactly how everything works. But you know what? Here's the thing with God. God is imminent. That's a characteristic meaning he's here amongst us right now. His Holy Spirit is with us right now. But God is also transcendent. He's above our thoughts. So I think that's a pretty big deal when you think about how big God is. But when I think about how God is the one in charge, and I mentioned this yesterday when I was giving my talks, that the In evangelism, the weight of the load is off of my shoulders, and it's what God wants to do. He wants to use us in evangelism. He wants us to share with other people, but as I said yesterday, I'm only in sales. God is in production. And when we understand that, that takes a weight off. When I'm evangelizing and I share with all that I have and I've done my best to share the gospel and somebody says, I don't want any of that, and they walk away, I don't kick myself and say, man, what if I had just done it a little differently? Now, maybe I need to change my tactics, don't get me wrong, but at the same time, if I understand that I am just a tool used by God, and he does use us, if you're willing to be used, he will use you, then... I don't have to worry about the results. God will take care of that in his own time. Everybody with me on that? Okay, that's the first promise we are picked. The second promise is we are purchased through his blood. We are purchased through his blood. And most of my sermon is going to be the second promise. I want to talk about this because this is something that is not normal for many religions, including the majority religion in this state. Now, I'm going to have to talk about theology, and I used to teach theology to high school students, and that sounds like a scary word, theology, but all it is, is the word theos and the word logi. Logi is, uh, in Latin, study of, and theos is a study of God. So in order to understand the Christian view of salvation, there's eight theological terms that I need to teach you, And I think by the time we're done here today, I think you're going to have a pretty good understanding of what those three are. So we have to first summarize salvation in a past, present, and future idea. And these are words you've heard before. They're used in the Bible. But let's identify what these words are. The first word, justification, justification is simply salvation past. We're going to talk about that a lot here today. Salvation past is justification. Once you have been justified, you have been commanded to do the second part, sanctification, which is salvation present. And the past is inferred when you become a believer, you become sanctified, but you're in a process of becoming sanctified. We'll talk about that. Sanctification is an important part of salvation. And see, here's the thing. When we use the word salvation, yesterday I told you, Always ask the question, what do you mean when you say salvation? Well, I think we need to understand, when the Bible is talking about salvation, we need to understand, is it talking about the past? Is it talking about the present? Or, is it possibly talking about the future? And that would be glorification. Glorification is salvation, future. So, an easy way to remember these three, past, present, and future, it's justification, sanctification, glorification. This is theology 101 in a seminary but do you think you have that down okay you have those three terms I don't know how often you hear them but we need to know those now justification is salvation past and when we wrote our book uh, in 2000 called Mormonism 101 we republished it with Baker books and rewrote the whole book in 2015 but one of the things that I enjoy doing in that book is we got to make our own definitions. It almost as like a little systematic theology book because what we're doing in Mormonism 101 is we're showing what Christianity has taught and we're comparing it with what Mormonism teaches because we want to see what those differences are. As we said yesterday, we're using the same terms as those in this culture, but we have different meanings to them. So we got to do the definitions. So this is my definition of justification. Being placed in the right, there's that action being done, and it's being done on you. Being placed in the right, thereby declared guiltless, allowing a person to be identified with Christ forevermore. I like that. Being placed in the right, being put in the right place so that you can be found. See, here's the thing about justification. When you are justified through faith and faith alone, your sins are wiped away so that you can have a new relationship that is between you and God. Because right now, if you don't have that, if you're not forgiven of your sins, then your relationship is broken. And that happened with Adam and Eve. But Romans chapter 5, uh, Paul does talk about how Adam's sin is countered by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And so we have that beauty of, yes, we have bad news and that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. But we have this idea that you can have this new relationship. It's just as if I never sinned, somebody once said. Justification, it's just as if I never sinned. Even though you had sinned, and we still continue to sin as Christians, even after you you become a believer, but God has forgiven you past, present, and future sins. Uh, The main difference, guys, between Christianity and every other religion in the world is the religions of today are asking the question, what can I do for God? They know that there's a list of to-dos. They've got to do these things. But what do I have to do to earn the righteousness to be able to make myself right before God? That's what all the religions are saying and asking, and striving for, and it's this hamster wheel. You're never going to arrive because you're never going to be able to get there, but Christianity asks a much different question. What did God do for me? What did God do for me? That's a That blows people away, and you might have talked to somebody and given them the gospel, and you, they say, what do you have to do to be saved? Like the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, and what did Paul say? Uh Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. That's it. Yeah, that's it. You receive the gift. There's nothing you do. What did God do for me is a much better question to be asking than what do I have to do? Because if you have to do what the law requires, nobody is capable of doing it. This is what Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 says about this promise. It says, in him, referring to Jesus, We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. In one sentence, we've got three big theological terms that Jesus lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Wow, there's power in these words. And understanding what they mean is important because each is its own nuance of what Justification is so. Let's let's define these words: redemption, deliverance from sin. And again, this is a definition that Bill and I came up with. But deliverance from sin in its guilt, defilement, power, and liability through Christ's sacrifice. When I was a child, uh, we used to collect soda pop bottles. Maybe some of you remember those days where they had the little bottles were ten cents and the big bottles were. And five cents for the little ones, big, ten cents for the big bottles. So we would go around and, and we would find these bottles and we would uh, go to the neighbors and see if they wanted us to return them, and some neighbors didn't want to mess with it. So we would take these six packs of bottles because they would reuse those bottles back in those days, like they do even in t- Mexico today. But we would put them on the counter and the checker would say, five, ten, fifteen, twenty, he would count up. And it would be like eighty cents well for an eight year old eighty cents back in the early 1970s was quite a big deal right and uh, and so I would think that is incredible that i 'm getting this value eighty cents for something that was not worth anything to me in fact, it was gross, it was sticky, and you know I had to wash your hands after it was all over and that's how redemption is. You have nothing to offer. All of your righteous acts are like filthy rags in God's sight, Isaiah 64, 6. You think your works are so good, and they're really nothing. It's like soda bottles that have been uh, drunk from before. This is not a good thing. Redemption is being delivered from that, and it's uh, nothing that you did to receive that. Forgiveness is a second word used in that passage. Forgiveness... This is number five of eight. Remember I told you I'm going to teach you eight words. Forgiveness is the complete putting away of sin and its consequences with no strings attached. We put those last four words in there because a lot of people think forgiveness is a continual thing you have to keep working at. No, no strings are attached. And, Ladies and gentlemen, this is the one thing, the one characteristic of a Christian. When we have people tell us that they're Christian just like we are, I always like to ask, so, you know you're going to the very best your religion has to offer. Well, not exactly, they'll say. The Bible says that we are a forgiven people. When somebody says, what does it mean for you being a Christian? I would use the word forgiven. I am a forgiven sinner. That might be the easiest way to explain who you are. Instead of just saying you're a Christian, say, I'm a forgiven sinner. And what does that mean? They'll ask you, oh, you just gave me a chance to share with you why Jesus means so much to me. Forgiveness is huge. Then we have what's called grace. Grace is unmerited. Merit means you work for it. This is not you work for it. Unmerited favor from God provided to those who believe. That is grace. Are you glad for God's grace today? Wow. It's getting what you don't deserve. It is nothing you did to earn it. It's nothing that uh, God says, okay, I'm going to hire you up, but you're going to perform for me down the road, and I'll take it away if it doesn't work out. No, forgiveness is a free gift given by God. Somebody has said grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches or God's righteousness, I've heard it, at Christ's expense. If that's what it takes for you to remember what grace is, there's a nuance to it. It's a reception a a receiving of something that was not earned. That concept is so important to get across to people who are in religion. There are people who are working hard, doing their very best, and they don't have any clue as to if they're forgiven. But ladies and gentlemen, 1 John 5.13 says we may know we have eternal life. You have the promise of forgiveness of sins, and you can know that it's a done deal. Jesus said it is finished. There's no more doing that has to be done. There's two more words I want to share with you, and that would be the word mercy, uh, not receiving the due punishment rightly deserved because of one's sin, not receiving the due punishment. So where grace was getting something you don't deserve, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Because people will ask, or will tell me, they'll say, uh, it's not really not fair that you get heaven. And I'll say, you're exactly right. You know what's fair for me? Fair would be that I get eternal punishment. But that's the beauty of the gospel because even though it was something that I deserved, I did not receive eternal punishment. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but that comma, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. I love commas. I'm glad there's not a period there because I do deserve death, eternal death, and instead, I get eternal life. And Jesus says in John 10, 10b, he came to give us life, a one that is full and abundant. I think living the Christian life can be one of the most rewarding lives available if you understand what the, what, what, what's at stake here. And then uh, there's one other term called imputation. Imputation, big word, but it is used in our Bible. And imputation is the righteousness of God credited to a person's account based on belief in Christ. This is like getting $10 million, $10 million in the bank you didn't know you had, and then realizing all of a sudden that somebody put $10 million in your account, and you go, $10 million? It doesn't sound like much when in this day of sports where athletes... Athletes uh, make $10 million in a year easily, but you know how much it would take for you to, from the age of 20 to the age of 60? You'd have to make 250000 a year over 40 years to make $10 million in wages. Now, some of you might have done that. I don't know. I'm not going to come anywhere close to that. I mean, that's a lot of money. And, uh, and so this is the understanding we have is that um, God, p- people will say, well, are you Perfect. When I'm talking about perfection, because this culture has a religion that says perfection is an achievable goal. They'll say, well, do you think you're perfect? And I always like to say, yes, I am. They go, that's audacious. You keep all the commandments. Oh, no, I don't. I, I, I struggle. I struggle like Paul did, if you read Romans 6 and 7. But I said, I have the righteousness of somebody who died on my place and suffered and paid the ultimate price. He has given me his righteousness, and so therefore I am perfect. When God will judge me, he's not going to see me. He's going to see his son, Jesus, and the blood of the cross that took place. That is an amazing thing. That's why we should always, through the most depressing times, the past year and a half has been very difficult, can't take that away from us. I don't care how hard things get, I don't politically or Uh, whatever in life however hard it gets keep reminding yourself I have been given a gift that cannot be taken away because Jesus imputed his righteousness into my account that's amazing for me it's not through works salvation is a free gift Ephesians 2 8 and 10 as I quoted by grace you have been saved through faith it's not of yourselves it is the gift of God Romans 4 2 uh, Abraham was not justified by works Paul talks about this also in Galatians chapter 3. And then in Titus 3, verse 7, we're justified by grace. Those terms are used justi- justified by grace. Uh, when you get a birthday present, do you take out your wallet when you get a gift and say, How much was that? It's kind of rude, isn't it? Somebody gives you a present and, and uh, you pull out your wallet because that's kind of how we are anyway as people, right? I mean, Christmas time. Uh, it was funny because the kids would, on the last day of school, right before the Christmas break, they'd give each other presents. And I remember this one kid got a present, and uh, and he says, oh, I left yours at home. And so afterward, I said, did you really leave the present at home? He says, no, I'm going to stop by Walmart and pick up a card, and I'll give it to him later. But, you know, we, we feel obligated, don't we? You give me a birthday present, I owe you one at your birthday. That's kind of how we operate. But that's not how God operates. Uh, uh, when you get a gift, um, do you promise to work the the debt off later? No, you don't promise to do that at all. What I would like to do is share with you the story that I I was telling you about earlier. This is my friend Corduroy. He's going to sit up here. He likes to see this story. This book right here. How many of you have heard of Corduroy before? Only a few of you. Okay. This might be new to you. Some of you Will be um, able to probably catch a lot more if you've seen this story before. But I want you to put. I would tell my juniors when I would do this lesson. I started doing this lesson right after in 1998. I started what the sermon is today and the teaching I have done. I have done this in 11 different states of the United States. I have uh, literally several hundred times probably. I have presented this to thousands and thousands of people. I have people who. Uh, buy the, go out and buy the book because what they're going to see. So I need you to put on your thinking caps like I would tell my juniors and they would pull the chairs away and they would want to sit on the carpet because it would remind them of the third grade uh time because they would all they all had read the book and so they wanted a bible teacher in 11th grade this sounds pretty cool so I'm going to read the story this is something different that probably a pastor doesn't do very often read a children's story but I want you to think through as we're seeing this how could we symbolize what's going on in this story with what salvation is are you guys ready here we go corduroy Corduroy is a bear who once lived in the toy department of a big store. Day after day, he waited with all the other animals and dolls for somebody to come along and take him home. The store was always filled with shoppers buying all sorts of things, but no one ever seemed to want a small bear in green overalls. Then one morning, a little girl stopped and looked straight into Corduroy's bright eyes. "'Oh, Mommy,' she said. "'Look, there's the very bear I've always wanted.' "'Not today, dear.' mother sighed, I've spent too much already. Besides, he doesn't look new. He's lost the button to one of his shoulder straps. Corduroy watched them sadly as they walked away. I didn't know I'd lost a button, he said to himself. Tonight I'll go and see if I can find it. Late that evening when all the shoppers had gone and the doors were shut and locked, Corduroy climbed carefully down from his shelf and began searching everywhere on the floor for his last button. Suddenly, he felt the floor moving under him. Quite by accident, he had stepped onto an escalator, and up he went. Could this be a mountain? He wondered, I think I've always wanted to climb a mountain. He stepped off the escalator as it reached the next floor, and there before his eyes was a most amazing sight. Tables and chairs and lamps and sofas and rows and rows of beds. This must be a palace, Cordray gasped. I guess I've always wanted to live in a palace. He wandered around, admiring the furniture. This must be a bed, he said. I've always wanted to sleep in a bed, and he crawled onto a large, thick mattress. All at once, he saw something small and round. "'Why, here's my button,' he cried, and he tried to pick it up, but like all the other buttons on the mattress, it was tied down tight. He yanked and pulled with both paws until, pop, off came the button, and off the mattress, Corduroy toppled, bang, into a tall floor lamp. Over it fell with a crash. Corduroy didn't know it, but there was someone else awake in the store. The night watchman was going his rounds on the floor above.' When he heard the crash, he came dashing down the escalator. Now, who in the world did that, he exclaimed. Somebody must be hiding around here. He flashed his light under and over sofas and beds until he came to the biggest bed of all. And there he saw two fuzzy brown ears sticking up from under the cover. Hello, he said. How did you get upstairs? The watchman tucked corduroy under his arm and carried him down the escalator and set them on the shelf in the toy department with the other animals and dolls. Corduroy was just waking up when the first customers came into the store in the morning, and there, looking at him with the wide, warm smile, was the same little girl he'd seen only the day before. I'm Lisa, she said, and you're going to be my very own bear. Last night I counted what I've saved in my piggy bank, and my mother said I could bring you home. "'Shall I put them in a box for you?' the sales lady asked. "'Oh, no, thank you,' Lisa answered, and she carried Corduroy home in her arms. She ran all the way up four flights of stairs into her family's apartment and straight to her own room. Corduroy blinked. There was a chair and a chest of drawers, and alongside a girl-sized bed stood a little bed just the right size for him. The room was small, nothing like that enormous palace in the department store.' This must be home, he said. I know I've always wanted a home. Lisa sat down with Corduroy on her lap and began to sew a button on his overalls. I like you the way you are, she said, but you'll be more comfortable with your shoulder strap fastened. You must be a friend, said Corduroy. I've always wanted a friend. Me too, said Lisa, and gave him a big hug. The end. And the kids would go, yay! they enjoyed the story. But what I want you to do now is play detective with me because I believe that the story of Corduroy is a perfect picture of the historic Christian view of salvation. Were you able to see some of that as we read it? Let's go through each of the characters. I used to teach English as well, and so we would... We would uh, read stories like A Tale of Two Cities and things like that. We would see what the characters would represent. We're going to do the same here with corduroy. So who could corduroy represent, class? I'm sorry? Yeah, it's us, you, it's me, right? All of us are represented by corduroy. What about the missing button? What does that represent, perhaps? And by the way, Don Freeman, the author, I cannot find any sign. He's passed away many years ago. I cannot find any sign he was a Christian, but I think he gets it. I think he gets what Christianity is all about. But that missing button is what? Anybody? Not the Holy Spirit. We're missing something. Yeah, that's sin. That's corrupted us, hasn't it? So the the idea of this missing button is we're incomplete. Left to our own, we're not going to be what? was intended to be. This bear is never going to be wanted by any should not be wanted by any little girl because he's missing that button. He's incomplete. We are incomplete. Romans 3.23, as I said earlier all have sinned and have fallen short. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Now Lisa, who does Lisa represent? I think it's pretty clear. Every Sunday school this is the best answer for the Sunday school class. right What is it? Jesus! Absolutely, because what does Lisa do? Lisa takes her bank and breaks it open so she can take all of her money and redeem the bear. I'll use that word, redeem, purchase the bear. She took all she had and gave it. What did Jesus do? He gave us life. He gave everything to come to this earth to redeem people. Amazing. So Lisa is a great representation of Jesus, and there's the bear. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a great verse. We were still sinners, sitting on a shelf, and Christ died for us. Well, what about Lisa's mom? Well, this is a debate, and this is we don't have time, but I, I would ask kids, and so I would... It would happen every single class. Somebody would raise their hand and they'd say, oh, Lisa's mom, that obviously is representing Satan. So I'd say, well, why is why is uh, the mom representing Satan? Well, she won't let the uh, um, the girl buy the bear and she's just kind of mean about it and everything. I, I think she's Satan. And then somebody else would say, oh, I think that might be God the father. I'd say, wow, you know, Satan, God the father. That's quite a contrast. And I would usually have a student who would say, well, notice the mother allowed Lisa to do it, but it had to be on her terms. She had to go and do the pain for it. The father was going to require that. And so I think that's exactly what the mother, uh, the mother represents, God the father. God the father has standards. This is how they're set. This is the way it's going to be, unless there is something that happens to pay that debt. Somebody's got to pay. That's what Hebrews talks about. The book of Hebrews says that, There had to have been a sacrificial animal, not perspiration, not that it would sweat blood, but rather it would have to be expiation. It would have to die. And so Jesus was the perfect lamb of God who came to die for the sins of people. I think that's a great representation of how the father and the son uh, did operate. That palace upstairs, this was another one. Well, let me ask you, uh, what, uh, this would have some differences. Uh, palace upstairs, somebody tell me what you think that might be. Heaven, is it heaven? This, is not a, this can't be heaven. Why can't it be heaven? Because there was nothing there to fulfill. Um, instead, the palace upstairs, I believe, is what the world is all about. The world has a lot to offer. And and people will go, oh, if only I can get the million dollars, then I'll be happy. If only I get married, I'll be happy. If only I have children, I'll be happy. The world says, you do what you feel is best. You just fill your life up. But here's the problem. I believe that there is a hole in everybody's heart that cannot be filled with money, sex, power, the three things that Seem to be so motivating for people. There's something a hole in our heart that can only be filled with a true relationship of God. And so, I, and I have this slide. I'll use this with the kids, and I'll I'll say, you know, you can get the best car, you can have tons of cars, and you ask the person, "Are you now happy?" And no, I need more cars. I need more money, and they keep striving for things that they'll never satisfy them but only a relationship with Jesus. That palace looked great, and the world says, it's so good, and it's not going to satisfy. There are people who are, ne- you know people who are never happy? They're always just, and you, and you just say, my goodness, I would not want to live that life, because they're always striving for something that's unattainable. The Christian has found what seems to be impossible, and when you find that, you You don't want to stay in the palace. In fact, what happens is corduroy gets himself in trouble. And sometimes people get themselves in trouble striving for the things that they shouldn't really be striving for. Nothing wrong with money or sex or power. But when that becomes your main motivation, you end up falling like corduroy. And there's this night watchman that comes. And the night watchman would represent who? Who? It could be, it, could, it was fun, we would have dialogues, because I'm making all this up, I'm, I'm coming up with this on my own, I'm just telling you what I think, and there's no book on this that says that, that this is what Don Freeman would have said, but I think this is not, it could be the Holy Spirit, that would be a great uh, point, but I think this is more other Christians. Other Christians. You know, and the reason I say that is James chapter 5, the very end of James. Listen to what James says, James 5, 19 through 20. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. You know, you have been commissioned, Christian, to watch out for each other. You are commissioned out in the world. You see somebody who's struggling. I mean, you may need to share the gospel with them. Maybe they're already a Christian. You need to be there for them. You are to be looking around. What's going on? How did this happen? And maybe they are stuck on the ground, and they need somebody to help them up. Maybe you're the one who can help them up. Even something as simple as a meal, you know, to their house, or coming to visit. You have a lot of opportunity to be able to do what God intends. I think that night watchman, I'm so glad for other Christians who have watched out for me. Third promise we have is found in verses 9 through 10. We are part of his plan. Verses 9 and 10 of Ephesians chapter 1. This is what Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 says. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, Jesus uh, even one head, even Christ. So the mystery of his will. This is the thing. We have another step after justification. It's salvation passed for justification, but sanctification, I told you before, is salvation present. And a definition we gave in our book on sanctification is this, synonymous with holiness It means to be set apart for God. It's being set apart for God. Remember verse 4 we read on the first point? For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Notice, he chose us to be holy. You can't be holy unless you are a believer, you can't be blameless in his sight unless you are a believer. But when you are justified, then you are called to be holy and blameless. And in the next chapter, Paul's very clear, and I brought this out yesterday in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right after it gets done saying, we're saved by grace through faith, it's not of ourselves, it's, it's not by works, it's not by works at all. The verse 10 then goes on and says, for we are God's workmanship created by Christ Jesus to do good works, which is... He has prepared, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So when somebody says to me, well, what about works? James 2.20, faith without works is dead. What do you do with that verse? Sounds like you have to work for it. No? Paul, uh, James is talking to an audience who thinks that um, it's, all you have to do is have uh, belief and you don't have to do anything. And as part of a Christian, you're called to be blameless in his sight. So sanctification comes naturally. When somebody has put $10 million into your account, don't you think you'd have some kind of appreciation for that? At the very least, would you send a thank you note? I think it deserves much more. I think you would want to go over and give that person a hug and thank you. I could have never earned this on my own. A lifetime of work, I could have never gotten $10 million. I think you would want, do oh, you, you need anything done? If, if it had some, have you ever given something and they say, oh, do you need anything? Do you, I, I want to help. And they want to pay back somehow. There's no payback, but you know, God says, if you love me, then you're going to keep my commandments, and this is what um, this is what uh, the last uh, slide is. Is um, Lisa holding corduroy, and says, "You must be a friend. You must be a friend." John fifteen fourteen says this: "You are my friends if you do what I command." We've been commanded. If you're my friend, do you consider yourself a friend of God? He considers you his friend. If you consider yourself a friend, you'll do what he says. That's why we study our Bible. Sanctification, the attitude of being set apart for God and living a holy life. You're not going to be successful 100% of the time. Don't get me wrong on that. But it is a response, a healthy response, to show to, for what God has done in the justification process. Jesus says you will know them by their fruit. You're going to be known by their, your fruit. Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for, the Greek is very clear. It's work it out. If you're a believer, good works should follow. Second Corinthians 5.17, a person has become a new creation, Paul says. Old things pass away, all things become new. There's a metamorphosis that takes place. You're no longer as a caterpillar, Willing to just chew on leaves, you rather you want the sweet nectar. So when you get wings to sprout and you move from from the caterpillar stage into the butterfly stage, you have a new desire. You don't want to just munch on leaves. So we, according to the Bible, must count ourselves dead to sin. I can go through a whole man, whole slew of verses talking about the importance of sanctification, but what J- Jesus says in John fifteen. This is, verse 8, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Verse 10, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Verse 16, you did not choose me. you saw that in verse 4. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So we don't want to forget about good works. It's just that good works is the cart and the, the horse is the justification. We can't put the cart in front of the horse. We must be justified, and then the works that we do are nothing we're doing to pay back or to earn, but rather it's what we are showing as an appreciation for what God has done. So justification, sanctification, and finally, glorification is salvation future. It begins at justification. It's a done deal. And the idea that you will be forever with Jesus in this life and the next, is, uh, and and really specifically talking about um, the next life. Notice what happens. Lisa takes the bear. Now, it was easy to get up in the palace. What did the bear have to do? He just had to get on an escalator. It's easy. The world will help you get up there. No problem at all. But there was no escalator to get the four flights up to Lisa's room. She carries the bear. The Savior carries us up the stairs. We couldn't have done it on our own because he's just kind of there. He's just sitting there. and Somebody has to put him into their arms. And, and so that happens. And she takes him up to her own personal room. And Lisa's room is a representation of what? Now we've got heaven. Now we've got heaven. Yeah, Lisa carries corduroy up those four flights, John 14, two through four, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. We don't get a lot of information about heaven. I think probably because we have work to do here, and if we get too caught up on what heaven's going to be like, it will happen, it'll be for eternity, there will be worship, there will be work, there will be fellowship, there will be an awesome time. But Jesus spends more time actually talking about hell and the problem of hell than, than anything that will happen in heaven. He says, just trust me, take my word for it, I'm Jesus. There's many rooms, I have one for you. And so when we pass away, We have the assurance that we will be with Jesus in heaven forever. And then notice what happens. His button is returned. He gets a new button sewn on. What do you think that represents? I think it represents the new body that we will get. Anybody want to say amen to that? The Bible in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the resurrected body. It will be a perfected, glorified body. Wow. All the aches that you have now will be no more. Heaven is a reality, but we don't get to taste it yet. We get a little bit of an idea, a glimpse, but we will not really fully grasp it. You guys saying today, won't it be wonderful there having no burdens to bear? Won't it be wonderful there? You'll have no burdens there. Jesus has promised that Corduroy gets to experience something that he was looking for and he didn't know what it was until he actually got to experience that. We have three promises in conclusion. Number one, we're picked. We are picked. Amen to that? Wow. Nothing I did. It was what, before the foundation of the world, it says that Jesus picked me we are purchased number 2 and number 3 we are part of his plan and this is what i ask you today where is it that you are at right now are you on the shelf waiting you know blessed are the feet of those who bring good news it says in romans maybe maybe somebody is not here maybe it's somewhere else maybe that's you you're the night watchman are you, are you up in the palace right now, looking around, trying to find what you cannot fill your life with, the hole that's there? Are you, or are you in the Savior's arms? See, that's the amazing thing about this thing called Christianity. John Newton's Amazing Grace says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, corduroy, but now I'm found was blind but now I see Jesus paid it some some to him I owe right no Jesus paid it all all to him I owe so I hope this morning you'll remember this bear maybe you want to go get the book share it with your grandchildren or children if you have children and tell them the story that Jesus loves people and wants to have a relationship it's just a matter of having them found let's pray lord god thank you for the just the life for the life that we have now anticipating what exactly heaven's going to be like we don't know but we know that we have forgiveness of our sins. we have been redeemed by the blood You have imputed your righteousness into our account, not based on anything we've done, but based on what you did on the cross, Jesus.